You're listening to a podcast from Turner's Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, among the first men and women to hear Mark's gospel and to hear Jesus' words, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, would have been some who were actually crucified for their faith. So in 64 AD, which is around the time Mark's gospel would have been distributed to the Christians in Rome, a great fire destroyed a section of the city of Rome and Christians became the scapegoats. And so in retribution, the emperor Nero tortured them publicly. Um, The Roman historian Tacitus records what happened. He says, in their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and torn to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to. And when the day waned, they were burned to serve for the evening lights at Nero's garden parties. This is pretty terrible, isn't it? These were the people Mark is first writing to. They're the situations they're facing. So you can see how resonant the words Jesus speaks in these passages would have been. Well, a couple of years ago, Malcolm and I went to... uh, Premier annual lecture together, and the speaker talked about the persecution of Christians throughout the ages, and particularly in uh, the Roman period. And afterwards, there was this question and answer session, and people were asking questions of the speaker. And one guy stood up and said, "These early Christians who died for their faith, didn't they know about Jesus' promises of abundant life?" That was his question. Didn't they know about Jesus' promises of abundant life? And the reason they asked the question, where he was coming from, was. It seems to me what the Bible says is when you become a Christian, great things happen and God looks after you. And if you know that, then surely you wouldn't ever have to suffer anything as terrible as martyrdom for your faith. God's going to protect you and look after you, right? And I was quite shocked by the question, and the speaker handled it really well. But what's, what's interesting, I think, is, is there is this tension in the Christian life between uh, speaking about suffering and speaking about the blessings of the Christian life. And um, I mentioned to you uh, a little while ago, I think maybe one of the things God would have us speak about in the long term over the coming year is what it means to enjoy being a Christian. So I thought today we'd begin by looking at suffering together. (laughs) Nice foundation. But actually, I think a real good understanding of the place of suffering in the Christian life um, is actually foundational to enjoying Jesus, uh, enjoying relationship with God. And this passage, I think, speaks directly to it. So... The question I kind of want to ask this morning, or for us to hold in our heads to begin with, is does being a Christian have to involve suffering? Does being a Christian have to hurt? Maybe even today there's some of you here are who that question is more than an intellectual question uh, for. Maybe it's something happening right now and you're questioning does it have to be this way? Do I have to go through something difficult? Does someone I love have to suffer in this way? Or does life have to be this confusing? Maybe something recently has happened. Maybe you're feeling even knocked about by God. Maybe even kind of wanting to uh, take Job's wife advice, wife's advice and start to really, really question what's going on. And I, th- I do think God would speak to us about these things today. And... Like I said, this, this tension between our experience and the promise of the Christian life, it comes out of the Bible, it comes out of our own experiences. 
But of all the parts of the Bible that speak about suffering uh, in the Christian life, I think Jesus' words today, the ones I've started by quoting about denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him, are prob- probably the most unequivocal, the most direct, the, the hardest to dispute. What else could Jesus mean when he says that if we would come after him, we must take up our cross? What, what else could he mean except that there's some sacrifice or suffering or pain involved? And, and when we put it in context, he's, he's just rebuked Peter because Peter's saying to Jesus, surely you don't have to suffer to, to be the Messiah. He, he's saying Jesus is talking nonsense and he rebukes him with his famous, get behind me, Satan. And so Jesus is saying, you don't understand the path of the Messiah. And then as if to double down, he, he gathers a crowd around him, to the disciples and a whole bunch of other people to gather and listen to this. I want you all to, to be really clear, to understand what I'm saying. Not only must the Messiah suffer, but if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself and take up the cross and follow me. I think he's being quite clear. And then as if, just in case they still haven't understood, verse 35, he kind of doubles down again. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And everything about, not just what Jesus says, but even the way Mark presents the material is meant to highlight this fact. It's right in the center of the gospel. It's this turning point when Jesus, the disciples first recognize that Jesus is the Messiah and first confess that he's the Christ. There's this turning point. And Mark wants us to see that suffering somehow is central to our experience of the gospel. And even in terms of why Mark would want to highlight this, when you think about those first people he wrote to, He wants to assure them that their suffering is not meaningless, nor is it random, but actually, that for those who face such terrible things as the persecutions of Nero, God is in it, and Jesus spoke directly to their situation. He wants to reassure them. So really, there's no doubt in my mind that God would speak to us about the reality of suffering in Christian life through this passage. What's really powerful about what Jesus says here to that question is the way he speaks about the purpose of suffering. He, he helps us to get our heads around why there is pain sometimes in the Christian life. And it, he does that really by drawing our attention to the cross. Um, so I, I, I believe God really wants us to reassure us as his children that he knows what he's doing. Maybe he wants to reassure you intellectually, so you can resolve some of those big questions about the nature of pain and suffering. Maybe he wants to reassure you personally about stuff that you're actually going through. He wants to give us understanding and he wants to give us his comfort this morning. And there there are three big things I think God speaks to us about out of our reading today. The first thing is this. I think God would remind us that the Christian life carries an amazing reward. This is almost literally preaching to the choir, except we're not a choir. But <laughs> um, but I think God wants to remind us of, of this. One um, popular translation of this passage reads, whoever would be my follower must so on and so on. But if you, if you cut that short, if, if that was the right translation, it would, be basically, it would say something like this. Whoever, 
whoever would be my follower must follow me, which is kind of like a truism, right? I don't think Jesus meant that. So, so what, what did he mean when he said uh, whoever would come after me? Well, remember, Jesus, in the first instance, we imagine this picture. Jesus is, is addressing Peter's rejection of, of, of Jesus' own suffering. Peter wants to come after Jesus. Peter wants to be a follower of Jesus. He wants to be his disciple. He wants somehow his life to be wrapped up in this Jesus thing that he's been caught up into. Well, what does that mean to Peter? He would have had some understanding that following Jesus meant some kind of reward, right? But that's what's going on in his head. He wants to be among this number of people because there's going to be something good happening. He can sense it. And and you remember uh, elsewhere in the gospel, we have uh, uh, James and John asking Jesus, um, you know, when you come into your kingdom, can we, can you promise us that we're going to sit on your left and right? You know, there's there's this sense that there's going to be some kind of honor or reward for, for being Jesus' followers. Now, well, that's something like what Peter is, is hoping for. That's when, what's what he's thinking when he's saying to Jesus, enough of this suffering business, you know, let's just get to the good stuff. Let's, He's expecting a kingdom where he's going to have a key part to play. He's expecting, like many Jews of the days uh, of that day would have expected, he's expecting a time when um, all the rebellion against God that was uh, seemed to be like the whole story of Israel would have just been wiped away, and finally Israel would be reconciled with God and following Him faithfully, and all the stuff that would flow from that, like this country you could live by God's laws and, and, and be close to him. He's expecting uh, this messianic age in which says um, God's shalom, his, his peace and his wholeness would kind of flood into the world. He's expecting a, a new age to come when there's prosperity for the people around him and there's, there's peace, there's no more war, there's no more occupation by the Romans. He's probably even expecting that somehow the, the Gentile nations will not only be banished from, from Israel, but actually they'll become, begin to become worshippers of the living God. He's expecting all those things. So on, on he's got this kind of big picture. There's this reward to following Jesus. So Jesus, in the first instance, if you want that reward... There's going to be some self-denial, some cross-carrying to bear. But it's not just abstract. Also, Peter would have had some sense that this messianic age would have meant a difference in his own relationship to God. He would have been aware of the prophecies that, that one day God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, not just on select prophets or uh, kings, but actually that somehow there would be this closeness between individuals and God in a way that hadn't been there before, that somehow God would write his law on the hearts of his people. It would have been a, a personal blessing. And, and I think on top of all those things, on top of his Jewish background, Peter, having followed Jesus for getting on for three years at this point, would have begun to realize that what was being held out for him was an opportunity to actually obey Jesus, the commands that he was giving. You know, imagine sitting there, listening to Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies as yourself, or do not worry about anything. Or, you know, he's giving these, he's saying this is the, this is the fulfillment of the law. And if you're Peter, you're like, there's no way that naturally speaking, I, I could begin to obey that law. I can't even obey the Jewish law. How am I going to obey these new commands? And yet there's some sense of promise that through this, what's to come in this kingdom, when Jesus is somehow crowned or his messianic mission is fulfilled, there's this sense that actually 
someone like Peter could begin to live according to Jesus, or maybe even begin to be able to be like Jesus. This wonderful, captivating, incredible, compassionate, merciful, and wise man that he's been following for three years. It's a sense of, so it's not just about the situation, not just about what changes in here, but actually he's beginning to fixate on Jesus himself and I could be like him. And so to all those things, Jesus is saying to Peter, if you want to, this big picture to be fulfilled, if you want a transformed relationship with God, if you want to be able to obey me and be like me, then there's some self-denial. There is some taking up a cross and following me. There is a laying down of your life. You know, and I think that's a, that's a message for us today. God would remind us of those blessings. These kind of scattered, half-developed thoughts that Peter had of what it meant to come after Jesus. We, we can now speak more confidently about, can't we? Because we have all the revelation that Peter didn't have at that time and all the history of the church to help us unpack what it means. We know that to be a Christian means to, to get a stack load of blessing, doesn't it? To come into a relationship with the triune God, to, to be drawn ever closer into relationship with the Father who loves us perfectly, to be drawn closer into fellowship with Jesus so we get to know him like Peter did, but even better, more closely, more wonderfully by the Spirit. And in the power of the Spirit, we get to experience that uh, fellowship with God. We get to experience the peace of the Spirit and his joy. We get to experience the shalom and the order of God descending in our own lives. We get to experience the gifts of the Holy Spirit working through us and the fruit of the Holy Spirit growing in us. We get the family of the church, the family that we're involved in here now and the family spread out through space and time. We get to be what may be in a distant hope for Peter is real for us. God says that he will change us into the image of Christ to be like him. We get this promise that God will arrange our lives providentially so we get to do things and bless people and give glory to God and experience that fulfillment of serving God in a way that perhaps Peter would only have begun to dream about. And, and, and at the end of all this, where this all comes from, of course, is this promise that in the, in the life to come, we will have eternal life. We will live in perfect fellowship with God forever and ever and ever. And that promise is like this, this, this so powerful and strong, it kind of leaks out from the future into our present and infuses it with all these wonderful things. So the Christian life is, what the first thing God would say to us this morning is it is so worth it, isn't it? The Christian life is, is so worth it. We consider the, the promises, the blessings that God holds out for us. Before we get on to the, the, the self-denial and the cross-carrying thing, let's just focus on those words. If anyone would come after me, would, do you want to come after Jesus? Would you like to follow him? Do you want what he's offering? Maybe you're just on the, the verge of following Jesus. Just, I just want to kick you over the edge <laughs> with this, holding out this promise. To just don't hold back. There's nothing to hold back to. If you've been a Christian a long time and you've lost sight somehow of those promises, I, I, I hope that what I'm saying to you doesn't just come across as the kind of, you know, preacher's cliches of what it means to be a Christian. For me, everything I've just said to you is a hard-won truth. Not, not as in I experience all those things, but it's taken me a long time to get past the, 
um, just, just a vague idea of what it means to be a Christian, actually to be able to mean all those things and to say to you confidently from Scripture that God actually holds out this promise of blessing to you. It's so, so worth it. It's worth selling everything you have and giving all the money to the poor and following Jesus. It's worth, you know, like the guy who found that treasure in a field, it's worth selling everything just to have this one thing. It's worth counting everything as, as rubbish. So do you want to come after Jesus? Do you want to follow him? Do you want those things? Just, you don't have to say yes out loud, it's fine, but just at least say yes in here. Okay then, the Lord says to Peter, he's saying to Peter, if you would come after me, this isn't some open top tour bus of heaven or the Messianic kingdom, you have to count the cost. You have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. It's going to hurt, but it will be worth it. That's the first thing God will say to us this morning. So why does it have to hurt? That's uh, <laughs> the next bit. Like I said earlier, Jesus focused on this phrase surrounding the cross itself. That somehow Jesus' death on the cross is something that we have to enter into ourselves. That's at the heart of, of understanding uh, why there is pain for us in following Jesus. So secondly, just focusing on the picture of the cross, what does that mean? Well, in the first instance, Jesus, of course, went to the cross to deal with our sin. You probably don't even need me to tell you that, but just to focus on that. So when he says we have to take up our own cross, he's pointing the fact that each of us has a part to play in dealing with our sin. There is somehow we join in with Christ dealing with our sin on the cross. And we call that process sanctification. We call it becoming holy. Now, just to avoid confusion, it's not in any way saying that we pay the price for our sin or it's all on our shoulders or any of those things. But the Bible is quite clear that while Christ died for us and salvation is a free gift, when it comes to actualizing, realizing that holiness in our own life, God uses our own choices and our own will and our cooperation with him to make us more holy. So Paul writes in Romans 6, he says, when we're baptised, um, we are um, our old selves are put to death with Christ. But he goes on to say, he doesn't just say, so receive that, he says, count yourselves dead to sin. That means to, you know, when temptation arises, it means to resist, it means to not walk in the way that you used to. And then he makes it even more explicit, something like Colossians 3.5, and we can multiply the examples. He says, we actually have to put to death our old nature. He's saying the same thing. We have to take up our cross. There's a joining in with what Jesus did. And if, if, if the part of what it means to be a Christian is to put to death our sin, is to somehow join in with Jesus in crucifying our own sinful selves, it makes sense that this process would hurt. So there's a, an article in the paper this week about a guy called Edward Putman who in 2009, won two and a half million pounds on the National Lottery. You, ever heard, you heard this story? And he was the first guy to get away with faking a, a lottery ticket. When, when he went in, he claimed the prize. The prize went unclaimed, almost a deadline. He turned up a few 
few days before the deadline expired with the winning ticket. The barcode didn't work, but everything else looked legit. And the chief executive, or whoever is the top dog in Camelot, decided they would award the prize. Well, that was in 2009. He's been having a bit of a whale of a time, but um, turns out he, it was a fake, and now the police are, are pursuing him to recover this two and a half million. Well, I can't imagine what it'd be like to live with two and a half million in the bank for nine years <laughs> and to be able to do all those things and then to suddenly have to change your way of life completely. So, well, not just to change your way of life, but to have to hand it back. That must probably, that's probably a pretty painful process for Edward Putman, I imagine. Well, that's just gives, you know, that's just a picture, I suppose, of, of, of uh, something a bit like what happens to us when we become Christians. We have all this stuff that we've accrued without rights, without the right to them. Stuff that's not good for us. Stuff that we've lived with that God would rather we didn't have. And it's painful to get rid of them. You know, before we come to Christ, we have basically the freedom to do whatever we feel like. As long as we're literally able to do it. We have the, you know, our emotions. We can hate people and you don't have to feel guilty about it. We can taunt you know, other drivers or people we feel superior to or whatever. We can, uh, we can laugh at whatever we want. We can watch whatever we want. We, we can, you know, we just do whatever we like. And so we have to let go of that, that, that freedom just to do whatever, you know. When we become Christians, sometimes we have to repay, make a repayment for the wrongs that we receive. Remember the story of Zacchaeus who's up the tree and he met with Jesus and got saved and he, had, he handed back five times as much as he stole from people over the course of his career as a, as a tax collector. Well, we have to do something like that. We have to hand back sometimes the, the injustices that we've laid claim to ourselves. If you become a Christian and you've been in a, a physical relationship with your girlfriend or boyfriend up to that point, you've got to, you've got to, hand back that, that chastity and that, that sanctity of the, of the marriage bed to the person. Don't, don't you? That's, a, that's something you have to, you, you've been used to having. You have to, to give that back. If you, if you become a Christian, you have to hand back pride. It's very easy to, to cultivate an image and to, to project a, a, a fake image of who we are to the world around us. We don't have to worry about whether we're being honest or we've got the integrity or any of those things. When we become a Christian, at least before God, we have to, we, lay out all our sins and our weaknesses and when we come into a church and we have to lay out all our sins and weaknesses in front of those people as well and this is painful isn't it we have to hand back you know the free stationery from work that we've stolen we have to be diligent when we do our tax return or when we didn't used to we have to obey the spirit we can't just be you know, have to be self-controlled in big things and little things you know, um, Abby and I have been doing, I would say Abby's been doing this diet and I've been trying to do this diet. <laughs> We're giving up like sugar basically. And I just, it's like one of the things that I really struggle with is just chocolate, you know. Like when I first begin to give it up, I, I find myself obsessing about it and like thinking about you know, bars of galaxy. I don't cause anyone to stumble here, but you know, you rush out and get one now. And the first, like first couple of weeks, you just can't stop thinking about it like that sugar rush and then after you haven't eaten it for a while you eat it and you're like oh why did i even like this stuff it's like you know eating granulated sugar it's so horrible there's just an adjustment that comes when we have to let go of sin sometimes it's just things that we're so comfortable you actually become comfortable with things that are just really bad for us and we have to get used to that feeling of, of doing without without them we have to kind of fight the urges and the cravings to go back to those that could be silly things like you know 
I'm not sure your salvation hangs in the balance on whether you eat chocolate or not, but, but you know, just, just everyday things. So there's pain involved. There's pain of the kind of change and self-control and humiliation and letting go of things and handing back things that we, we don't deserve to have. Well, what's the purpose of, of that pain? Well, why does God want us to go through that? He could just click his fingers, right? He could just like, and zap us and, and fix us completely. And he does, of course, do that sometimes. But God is taking through that, us through that process because he doesn't just want, we've talked about this a lot, he doesn't just want servants who are able to obey his laws. He wants sons and daughters who understand his laws and choose to obey them. So he takes us through this process whereby he reveals to us the power of sin. You should stay away from that thing because it's like a whirlpool. It can drag you in and suck away all the good things in your life. Don't stay away from this temptation or that thing because just because the Bible says so, that's a good start, by the way. But stay away from it because you've experienced for yourself how powerful you've seen in the lives of your own life and the lives of people around you, how it could ruin you. He wants to reveal to us the ugliness of sin. He wants to bring us to a point where we, we hate the things that God hates so that we, are, we find ourselves repulsed by them rather than attracted to them. And this process teaches us to, to love God's law. It increases our desire for Christ as, as again and again we face the fact that without God, I cannot do the things that I want to do and I find myself doing the things that I don't want to do. We face that again and again. It, it makes us cry out for Jesus and we're like, God, I need you so much and I thank you so much for dying for me. And, and we experience this process of, of, of gradual freedom. There's, there's an assurance in that. You know, we, don't, we don't struggle with sin and the pain of leaving it behind because God needs us to do that. <laughs> you know, that we need to join in with, with Jesus. He do, we struggle with it because God wants us to learn deep down in our heart. We, he wants us to learn his law and write it on our hearts. You know, so what you're struggling with, it's not all on you. That's the point, <laughs> It's not all on you. God is there to help you. He's like a parent who comes alongside you. He's allowing you to carry just enough so that you learn what he needs you to learn. And yes, it's hard. But God knows what he's doing. So here's this reassurance. It's, if you want the rewards of following Jesus, you have to make hard choices. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Every time you bite your tongue, control your tongue like Matt was saying every time you take a cold shower or keep your hand out of the biscuit tin or tell the devil to get behind you every time you do that it's worth it it's not just a pointless fight it's not just a never never ending succession of like why doesn't the devil leave me alone you can even get to the point where you enjoy the fight where you go like today I kick the devil's backside (laughs) because I didn't do this thing and this thing Still thinking about this second point. Why does, it, why does it hurt to be a Christian? Still thinking about sanctification. It's not just about what we do, of course. But sanctification is something that God does to us, and that hurts too. The Bible says we suffer because by his providence, God allows us to go through trials and difficulties. So just like Jesus went to the cross according to God's plan and for God's purpose, we go through sanctification for God's plans and purposes. So if a man is proud and vain, 
God may allow him to go through a major humiliation. If someone is uh, sinning destructively and repeatedly, God may allow calamity to come upon them, to bring them to repentance, or even to warn those around them. You know, actually, the lines of how God works aren't always as clear as that, of course. They're much more subtle and complex. But God is always at work to change us into the image of Christ, to free us from the power of sin in, in one way or another. But it's not just about dealing with sin. And this is, this is the kind of second big point in this <laughs> second point. But there's another reason. God doesn't just want us to be free from sin. I don't know if you've, you know, if you've got kids. If you've ever had a, a, one of your kids has been really, really afraid of spiders or wasps or something like that. And you've done a little, we've, we've had this with a couple of our kids and um to try and get them over their fear, we'll try and capture the little beastie in a glass or something like that. Well, the glass it has to be. And then show them, get them to come really close. While it's still alive, you know, get them to come and look at this thing that they're really scared of. Anyone done that? Just me? <laughs> Sadistic crap. <laughs> and you can actually, you can begin to get to look at them and say, you know, this thing you're really scared of, it's, it, you know, it's, it's not just this thing that buzzes around. Yeah, you can actually see it up close and you can see how wonderful and intricate it is and Okay, yeah, you can see it's mandibles and maybe be even more scared. But anyway, <laughs> that doesn't make the point I'm making. <laughs> well, okay, silly examples aside, God takes us through all sorts of things to teach us that it's really true that we can trust him. You know, at the heart of the Christian life, Jesus is drawing our attention to it, is the mystery of the cross. That the cross is, objectively, the worst thing that ever happened. Just full stop, we don't even need to qualify that. Just the worst thing that ever happened. And at the same time, it is unqualifiedly the best thing that ever happened, isn't it? That's the power of God. You know, I, we could be twee about this and say, you know, God turns everything to his good, the Lord works in mysterious ways and that sort of thing. But here is, at the heart of our faith is this profound, apparent contradiction that points to the to our amazing God. The worst thing that ever happened is the best thing that ever happened. And God will take us to our own personal cross to reveal to us the immensity and the power and the goodness of that truth. His love flows life-givingly, boundlessly out of brokenness. You... If you've been, ever been through a situation and at the time you thought, I cannot begin to understand why God would allow this to happen. And yet, you, now, I'm saying this, if you've been through this, you can look back and you can say, objectively, God did amazing things. So God allows us, he allows us to experience everyday trials Inconveniences like four-way traffic lights at Turners Hill Crossroads, <laughs> aches and pains and frustrated plans and minor ailments. And he allows us to experience worse things, like chronic or life-changing illnesses or anxiety or depression or uh, unemployment. Or he allows us even to experience the worst things we can imagine, life-threatening situations. 
illnesses, the, the death of a spouse or a child, the financial ruin. He, in, he allows us to go through those things. To, why? What is his purpose in all these things? So that we can stare them in, at them face to face, like that wasp or the spider in the glass. We can look these things that we fear in the eye and know for certain the meaning of what Paul says when he says, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Our, our primordial fear. Aside from dealing with sin, God wants to deal with the primordial fear, this infection that we've inherited from, from our father Adam is this lie of Satan that God is not good. Or God is not all-powerful, or both. And every time we face a situation where it seems like that might be true, the devil wants to re-whisper that lie into our hearts, and God wants us to be freed from that fear. God wants to free you from that fear. He wants you to be able to say, I have walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And he was with me. He wants you to be able to say, I was surrounded by my enemies and I overcame them. I even had a banquet in their presence. He wants you to be able to say with Job, though God slay me, still I will praise him. So God is is faithful in a way that doesn't stop at shielding us from our fears. But a faithfulness that frees us from fear. Altogether. So I want you to think about those situations God has already taken you through or is taking you through. And just know this God will bring glory from that suffering. I say that with confidence. Even though I feel that fear in me, even as I stand up here as your pastor preaching from God's word. The devil wants to say to me that it's not true, but it's true. Because of the cross, it's true, isn't it? That there will be glory from whatever suffering it is that you're going through or will go through. You will know his love more. People will be blessed and God will be glorified. You know, when you're going through something you can't understand, you mustn't despair. You mustn't despair. You know, the angels didn't understand the cross. It says it was a mystery hidden from all ages. God revealed it. In the happening of it, he revealed his plan. They didn't understand. They are cleverer than you. So when you're going through suffering, don't despair. You, you can't draw lines. Say, oh, I can see what God's doing here. It's really, really simple. Aren't you? Okay, he's dealing with my pride or he's dealing with my patience or whatever. Don't despair, but trust God is doing more than you can imagine. Bible says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. Okay. So, you, I hope you see this picture emerging from what Jesus said. He's holding out to us this prospect of coming after him, the blessings of being a Christian. All that stuff. And he's saying that to do that, there is this suffering that comes through being sanctified, being set free from sin and being set free from fear. So we're free. That's, that's, God is setting us free, and that's painful, but what for? That's the third thing. That's the third thing today. The cross wasn't just about dealing with sin. It was about love. It was the unveiling of God himself, actually. The revelation that God not only loves us, but is love. 
that at the cross he stooped to wash the, the feet. He stooped to wash the souls of his own creation at his expense. Not because he had to. God was under no compulsion to send his son to die for us. There was no obligation of duty there, there but he, because he chose to. So when Jesus says in verse 35 of our passage today, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's not just some spiritual maxim. It's not just some reassurance. It's a statement about the nature of eternal life itself. The life that God has within himself that flows out of his love is this giving of himself. It's self-giving. And so finally then, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves and follow Jesus is to use the freedom, the freedom from sin and the freedom from fear that God is sanctifying us for, is to use that freedom in order to lay down our lives for the sake of God and for the sake of others, to love as he loves. And so to enter into the very life of God himself. The blessings of the Christian life don't come because we are free from sin. They've come because freed from sin, we're able to truly follow Jesus and have fellowship with him. This, uh, in the Old Testament, you know the story, David slaying Goliath. And I think it gives a wonderful illustration of this. You know, David is a, as a young man, he's still a boy basically, and yet some, he goes to visit his um, brothers in the army, He's not a soldier. He doesn't have to be there in any sense at all. He goes and he hears Goliath challenging the armies of God to a fight. And nobody is brave enough to fight him. He has no duty upon him, no obligation to do anything about it. He's just he's the most unqualified guy there. And yet freely he goes to Saul, presents himself and says to the king, I, I, I'm going to kill the giant. He's completely free to do it, isn't he? No fear. No, nothing holding him back. It's just such a great picture of what I think God wants to say to us this morning. And, and Saul tells him, you're just a boy. It's not going to happen. You know, aren't you afraid? And, and, and David replies, he replies at this, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the poor of the lion, the poor of the bear, will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. God took him through all that stuff. I'm pretty sure he didn't have a choice about the bear or the lion. And set him free. And given the opportunity, he used his freedom to slay this enemy of God. To defeat this great evil. Do you see what God is doing in you? Do you understand what... I'm saying this morning. He's freeing you from sin, taking you through trials, so that when the opportunities come, you can freely take up your cross and follow him. To live courageously, to love boldly as Christ loved, and so to have fullness of life. You know, we don't even have to go to the Bible to know this is true. This every day gives us a example. When you know, husband and wife have a child, They give themselves in this agreement of almost total sacrifice, isn't it? Why? Because the life that emerges from that 
sacrifice of time and energy and money and opportunity and all those things, that life is so worth it. What comes from that self-denial and that willingness to take up a cross and bring a child into the world is life itself. So, yes, the Christian life hurts. It hurts because of sanctification. But as we grow in that freedom, there's another type of suffering. One we are free to choose in order to love God and to love others and to know God. That's what Paul says. You know, When Paul says in 2 Timothy, if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. He's not just talking about when stuff happens to you. He's saying when the opportunity comes for you to lay down your life for Christ. He's saying there's this freedom in front of you. Paul cries out in Philippians 3, he says, listen to the choice he makes in this passage. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's how he knows Christ. He's not asking to suffer for his own sin. He's not asking to be purified or for bad things to happen to him so he can be a better person. He's saying to God, show me the cross you have for me Point me in that direction. I will carry it. I will deny myself and carry it because it's worth it. So here's God's final challenge for us. You know, if we think that the goal of the Christian life is just being holy, just being sanctified, then we've missed a big part of what it means to follow Jesus. Actually, we're a bit like Peter. Kind of missing the final point of all the stuff that's been said. But like the blind man a few verses before what we read today, who was kind of healed and could see the people walking around like trees, everything's blurry. Guys, it's half the message God wants you to be holy. The full gospel is this, God wants you to be holy so that you can be free to love like Christ. That's what Paul goes on to say in Romans 6, he says, offer yourselves, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Not you have to, not you're compelled to, not God will take you in this direction, but offer yourselves as living sacrifice. So where, where then is God offering you the chance to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him? Perhaps it's something to do with your attitude to your children. I, I guess I feel that challenge myself. To really be all in, to lay down my life for them. Perhaps it's in the use of, you know, the big ones, money or time or talents. And perhaps there's an opportunity lying in front of you where you think, do you know what, I'd love to do that. I just don't know if I can count the cost. I don't know if I can make that sacrifice. Emotionally or effort, whatever it is. You know, and God just wants you to know, there's, there's no guilt tripping. <laughs> there's just... Wonderful invitations to freely serve him. There are some things God takes us to. And he says, you know what? You don't have to do this. But you can do it if you want to. And those are the most wonderful moments and opportunities in the Christian life. Do you say with Paul, when you see that thing in front of you, maybe there's something you're thinking of right now. I want to know Christ. So yes, I'm going to do it. Whatever cross is before you, God is waiting to be glorified as you take it up. He's waiting to release a blessing that you can't imagine upon people around you. And he's ready 
willing, just wanting to pour out the reward of his love into your heart as you follow Jesus and take up the cross and deny yourself and go after him. Let's pray.